We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hello and welcome to Sorted Cinema. At Sorted Cinema's flagship film podcast. Ricky D is not here today, but I'm here. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined uh, by returning guest Edgar Chaput. Thank you very much, Simon. Very kind of you to invite me to the show. And uh, first time on the, on the show, uh, she joined our uh, roster for our TIFF coverage this year. Uh, she's also got bylines at the National Post, Cinemascope, and Pop Matters. It's Chelsea Phillips Carr. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so yeah, for anyone paying attention, TIFF wrapped up about a week ago. Um, it's one of the uh, it's one of the biggest film festivals in the world. It's also like one of the major cultural events in Canada generally. Um, Got a little bit more media scrutiny than usual this year, uh, which we can maybe get into later. Um, Chelsea, what's what's your history with TIFF like? And what's your general like disposition towards it as a Torontonian? Uh, well, I've been for several years, and this is my first year covering it. Um, you know, it's it's okay. It's a bit hectic, and most of the films tend to come back anyway, so it's not like a major thing. Yeah, I, I covered it. I had a press badge once, I think it was five or six years ago, and I, I, I have distinct memories of trying to get drafts written in the press room, and just I, hectic is absolutely the word yeah. for it. And <laughs> sometimes it, it, it does get in the way of just general enjoyment of a film, unless you see something that happens to totally blow you away, which I think, as we all know, just doesn't happen that often, generally, regardless of the environment. Um, I think the, the toughest one to do was having to having to dash off a draft of my review of the master i had like 90 minutes between screenings it was it was it was a dark day anyway that movie yeah 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 anyway i think i even had to admit in my review that i didn't really know what the fuck i was doing anyway uh but that's that hasn't really changed uh and edgar this was your very first tiff it was indeed. It was indeed. I was quite excited. In fact, I have you and uh, the absent Ricky D to thank for it. You guys gave me a big helping hand in selecting the movies and even procuring me some tickets. So I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but it was my first TIFF. Uh, quite exciting. I, you know, all of this, all of what we're going to be talking about and maybe even some of the movies, very new to me. I hadn't been to the Bell Lightbox. I hadn't been to uh, the Ontario Arts Gallery. Uh, what else? Uh, Elgin and Winter Garden. All that stuff was new. It was a new experience. Uh, so you know, there was a lot of it, there was a lot of buzz for me. Maybe maybe unlike Chelsea and you. So I might be the one, um, uh, not necessarily for the quality of the films, but even more so just the tip experience itself. I might sound. A little too positive, but I can't help it. You know, I pop, right. I popped my tiff cherry. You got the you got the tourist experience, whereas we're just the the hard bitten locals who just yeah. get annoyed at the at the foot traffic and not being able to use mm. the sidewalks of our choice. Mm. Um. Anyway, I mean, let's we may as well get right into it because I I know that between us we saw like you know something like forty movies. I don't know how much. I know we've got some areas of commonality and a little bit of overlap. 
Um, I wanted to start with uh, a movie that I know, Chelsea, you and I have both seen, and it's been on my mind because it just won a special jury prize in Venice. Um, and that movie is Caniba, which is a uh, documentary co-directed by uh, Lucien Castagne-Taylor and Verena Paravel, who are probably best known for Leviathan, which I noticed just aired on, I think, the Discovery Channel. Um not to be confused with the Russian Leviathan. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Uh, so this one is a uh, is a documentary about uh, a, a cannibal who was uh, convicted of uh, shooting and then eating a woman in the early 80s. And since his release in the early 2000s, he's sort of been living off the notoriety of his crime. And uh, they choose to film him and his brother, who has um, his own set of issues, albeit not... Uh, directed outwardly um, in extreme close-up for the entirety of the film, and uh, things get a little bit graphic. I, now, I know you're you're not uh, super fond of the film because you 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 filed a review uh, for us on that subject. I thought about writing about it, and I and I couldn't. I just couldn't figure out a way in. Uh, did you see it on screener or in the or in the theater? I was in theater. Okay, yeah, I know some people who saw it on screener, and I imagine that. For what it is, you I th- I think to, to engage with it properly, you probably should see it in in as full a frame as possible. But I don't know how how did you feel about um, sort of this this film's approach to uh, to its subject and 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 the way that the filmmakers framed it as quote unquote like a collaboration. Yeah, I mean, it just felt so much like they were giving exactly what he wanted, kind of painting him as. Well, a uh, kind of freakish cannibal where he's shot in all these close-ups and it's distorted and he doesn't even look human the way they're filming him. Mm-hmm. But he's living off of his notoriety for killing a woman. So uh, I can't imagine he'd want a humanizing portrait. So it felt too much like we're giving this guy who literally killed someone exactly what he needs in his life. Yeah, there's definitely there, there's a tremendous amount of discomfort involved in watching the film and it, it's... And it's tricky because I, I say that and then I feel like I I can't help but, but imagine the filmmakers behind me sort of snickering and thinking, ha, that is exactly what we wanted. Um, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's an element of self-satisfaction there, particularly in the absurd ending, which involves sort of like a, a sing-along portion, which I don't, I can't. Uh, karaoke. Yeah. What? It, it, yeah. It's, it's truly bizarre. Um and I, I, I couldn't possibly determine what what the what the intent was. I mean, the other aspect of the way they filmed these guys was they had no translator present with them. So while they're filming in, in this intense close-up, there's no... Uh, and, they, and again, this was done on purpose. There's no intent as to where the focus is being placed because they don't have any sense of, of what's being said. So they don't know how to, uh, how to link meaning and image at a particular moment. Um, which is kind of interesting on paper, but it's it's just like yet another layer of of like all the stuff that's like there's just a lot of stuff going on in this film from the the combination of the incredibly loaded material to the way they're approaching it to their aesthetics to this like deliberate sort of like self hampering of not knowing what's being said. There's just there's so much going on. I mean, I, I agree with you, Chelsea, that I I don't, I don't think it was a success. Um, and there were, I don't know about what happened at your screening, but um, I heard whimpering in my screening and uh, not as many walkouts as I was expecting, though. 
there were lots of blockouts for me. For me, for some reason, it was only the couple sitting directly next to me. Everyone else stayed through it all, even through... There's two sequences in particular, um, one of which involves a manga retelling of his crime, which was truly, <laughs> truly ghastly. Um, and the other one involves uh, involves an act I won't describe on this podcast, but was um, also extremely difficult to watch. Um, and actually, it, it, the the only real benefit for me for watching Kaniba was that I saw it a few days before I saw Mother, and it made Mother seem like nothing at all um, <laughs> in terms of the screen violence. So that was actually quite helpful. Um, but anyway, that was I was sort of anticipating that one, and it was kind of a strange. I mean, I, I can't say I was disappointed. I feel like I got exactly <laughs> what, I, what I came it's, for. It's weird listening to you two describe it now. Neither of you are particularly positive on the film, so it's it's putting that spin on it. But that sounds like the dumbest movie to come out this year. Like, just <laughs> not for the subject matter, but for like the way, like the subject matter coupled with how it's presented. That just sounds retarded. Well, I mean, they are. I mean, I think Chelsea would say that 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 that, that honor goes to mother, but. That would be a subject for a yeah. different podcast. Um, yeah, fair enough. Did uh, by the way, Chelsea, did you see Mother at a at a festival event, or did you wait for for the theater? For the it was uh, a press screening. How did that go over? I'm so just during I'm, the festival. I'm I'm so curious about what how that was received in the room because I know that at my public screening, it was a very it was an extremely puzzled audience. Um, I mean. I didn't see too many walkouts, but the people I was with, all of us were totally disgusted. And afterwards, we all said, like, we would have walked out if we weren't in the middle of a, a row. So mm. it made it just, like, physically awkward to leave the cinema. But we both, or, like, we all thought it was uh, just, like, a disgusting film. Yeah, that's a weird one. I didn't see it at TIFF. It came out wide, but I was, yeah, the, the couple moments in that movie were always like, yeesh, they, they really went there it's... well I'm, I'm for anyone who wants to know uh, chelsea's fuller thoughts on on mother do you should check out her review over at uh, at pop matters i actually considered inviting you for our previous podcast which was about mother but then i thought about it and i was like that's going to be open warfare and i've had open yeah. warfare on a podcast before and it's usually not as fun as you think it'll be <laughs> no <laughs> so anyway um <clears throat> So, I mean, we've established one one common low light. Um, maybe, Edgar, what was... I mean, we may as well get right into it. What was your favorite thing that you saw at TIFF? Uh, the, my favorite thing I saw at TIFF was a, a really great movie uh, from uh, South Africa. It was called... was called... It's still called uh, High Fantasy. Uh, it's directed by a, a woman called uh, Jenna Cato Bass, B-A-S-S. First name Jenna J E N A, and uh, obviously not a director I'm familiar with. Non-professional actors, and essentially it's it's yet another film shot on an iPhone, which sort of is becoming a, a trend, almost cliche you might say at this point. But but I mean the movie looks pretty darn good all in all. But essentially, it is it's not very long. It's barely an hour and a half I think, and it takes place uh, a little bit outside of uh, Johannesburg, uh, sort of in the con in the desert, really, just some desert in South Africa. And it is a group of uh, four friends. There is one Caucasian girl, there are two black girls, and there is one young black gentleman. They all have very different personalities, uh, very different personalities. 
and they're on their way to a farmland owned by, I think, the grandfather of the one Caucasian girl, which itself is sort of a bit of a running joke slash sticking point throughout the film, obviously. Um, and f for reasons that are not explained and don't need to be explained, uh, they swap bodies uh, one night. Classic like, bodies. Dude... Well, that's the thing. It, it was the little press release said, oh, you think this is going to be a classic body swap? You know, just please come and see the movie. We promise something different. And it kind of does deliver something different. It It's very funny. You know, class, there, is a, there is a little bit of classic body swap, a comedy going on. No problem. It delivers. The jokes land. Um, but it also gets uh, legitimately curious about in in a South African context. I don't. I, I don't need to. Nobody needs to be taught. You know what what that country's history with race relations is like. So in a South African context, what would that be like if men, women, white, black, like swap bodies all of a sudden? Um, so it's it's funny. It's very dramatic. It gets very emotionally intense. Obviously, as as uh, they spend more time uh, in someone else's body, and the acting is for. I feel like we are saying this more and more. Maybe it's just because we're getting the the, the cream of the crop. But a bunch of non professional actors that deliver really really kick ass performances. I was extremely impressed with everybody. Uh, the scenery is, is, is absolutely gorgeous. South Africa is not a country I'm very familiar with, at least geographically, physically. Uh, it's a beautiful-looking film. It's a beautiful-looking location. It's a very honest movie. It's a very well-acted movie. And, you know, you're in and out in about an hour and a half, which is not something <laughs> not something we can claim too often when we go to the movies these days, it seems. So not only is it my highlight of TIFF, I, yeah, man, it's it's fighting for the number one spot of the year. To be completely honest, high high fantasy is its title. The only thing that I can share about high fantasy is that in lines, I heard several people raving about it. Yeah, well, I that was uh, when you leave, and I, you guys know this obviously. When you leave a screening room, there's the uh, uh, employees, the uh, volunteers. They have little boxes, and oh, you know, deposit your your ticket uh, for the People's Choice Awards. That's I saw other good movies. I'm not saying this is the only good thing I saw, but that, that was the movie I gave my ticket for. I, and I, I did so happily, very happily. I um, I only submitted my ballot for one film, and uh, that was Lucretia Martel's Zama. Did anyone else catch this by any chance? I did not. I missed that. Um, yeah, it was my favorite thing at the festival. Uh, for anyone who's not familiar, I mean, I've only seen one other Lucretia Martel film, which was uh, The Headless Woman from six or seven years ago. And I've been waiting for a follow-up for a long time, and um, this was just fantastic. It's uh, set in, I believe, the 17th century in Argentina, um, and it follows this sort of conquistador type who um, sort of bumbles his way around, you know, being in a position of power. And it's one of those movies that I, I don't know if anyone else has ever had this experience. I wanted to write about it, but Martel spoke so eloquently about what she was trying to do with the movie that I felt like I had nothing compelling to add by the time she was done talking. And essentially the way she described it was she wanted to tell sort of a, a story of, of colonial power, but to, and she didn't use these words, but I will, but she essentially wanted to decolonize that sort of story. And we, we saw sort of an attempt at that earlier. Um, 
earlier this year with James Gray's The Lost City of Zed, um, but this was a much more sort of concerted attempt at that. And um, I think my favorite thing that she said about it was like when you're when you're living under the yoke of imperial rule um, day by day, it doesn't just feel like total subjugation all the time. It doesn't just feel like it's not it's not just a constant torrent of misery. You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on and the power dynamics day by day are not necessarily as straightforward as you might expect. And the way she framed it was like, if you haven't lived that, then it makes sense that, that you would just, as an outsider, you would frame it as, you know, just total misery and subjugation. Um, the, what she does in her movie is very, very different. There's, uh, we see this guy sort of like struggle with trying to, um, keep the the theoretically um you know lower caste people in line he gets constantly humiliated he gets lost he gets demoted he gets i mean other things happen that i won't get into um and the last 45 minutes in particular was just a really um funny and um i don't want to moving is not the right word but it, it it was it sort of reached a new plateau of emotional engagement that's difficult to describe if you if you haven't seen it but i was I was really, really pleased with the way uh, the film ended up, and it's if you've seen uh, the Headless Woman, this is a totally, totally different beast. And uh, also, props to Danny Glover who turned up in the producers list, and I was not expecting that. Anyway, uh, so that was probably my single favorite thing that I saw at TIFF, and also, like I said, the only one that earned my my ticket. What was what was tops for you, Chelsea? Uh, the Varda film Faces Places was probably the best one that I saw. Which I think is a bit weird since it's technically uh, like it premiered at Cannes, not at TIFF. It's not really a TIFF film, but it was definitely the best thing I saw. It's uh, a documentary with Agnes Varda and the street artist JR, where they basically meet up and decide to go on a bit of a road trip to various villages in France. And they put up his graffiti, which is mostly photographs of people really blown up. So it's just like this very sweet film where they meet a bunch of people and hear their stories and take photographs of them. That does sound sweet. Very engaging. I feel like I didn't get to see anything sweet at TIFF this year. (laughs) I mean... On the topic of Zama, is that a movie that's going to get any sort of release? I'm assuming yes. I mean, I don't... I, I, I forget who was saying this on Twitter the other day, but I wish there was a more... I wish there was like a central resource that made it easy to figure out what's been picked up and by who. Yeah. Um, rather than having to you know Google every single film, but I'm guessing based on like the, again there were like a few name producers attached. Um, I'm I'm assuming based on that and based on the pretty rapturous reception that it's gotten that it will get some kind of release. Um, the Headless Woman was pretty well distributed as well. And that was yeah. like a much less that again, I'm going by recollection here, but that was a less accessible film than this one is. Um, so I'm going to assume it's going to make the rounds uh, in most major metropolitan areas. So there were a couple other films that um, I kind of enjoyed, but had somewhat more conflicted feelings around. Um, I guess uh, Chelsea, to get back to you, was there, was there anything you saw that you that you weren't that you're still wrestling with or you weren't quite sure where you where you stood on by the time it was over um well another one i really liked was the rider and there's a moment at the end where it's like it's about uh boys basically and it's all professional actors 
and it focuses on this one guy who's dealing with a brain injury from back riding and how he's kind of struggling with uh, who he's supposed to be as this sort of masculine American guy. And it's very, it's really beautiful and brutal. And there's this moment at the end where it gets very, very straightforward and explicit, which I thought was not really worthy of the rest of the film. But I thought overall it was really good. Sorry, what was the title of that one? Mm. You broke up a bit at the beginning. The Rider. The Rider, yes, the, the, right, the Jew film. Yes, I heard that was another one that people were, um, I forget who, who it was who, they apparently they felt a bit silly saying it but they did they did frame it as the moonlight of this year's tiff whatever that means no. <laughs> you, maybe don't, you don't, maybe you don't agree with that particular assessment i'm not really sure yeah no I, I i hate to assess movies based on like buzz or anything like that i have to say probably the, the, the so i had sort of an awkward um experience with ticket buying because um, I, when I, when I originally bought my round of tickets, um, I thought, you know what, it's in black and white 35. I'm curious enough just for that alone to see the new Louis C.K. movie. And that was before I knew what it was about, which I don't know if, how much you guys know about it, but, uh, essentially, oh, well then you'll like this. So, um, it's a... It's a very Louis-esque, except, you know, obviously feature-length uh, movie about uh, C.K. plays a famous and and sort of well-respected TV writer, who, of course, has no resemblance to Louis C.K. himself, um, whose teenage daughter starts uh, dating someone who is very clearly modeled on Woody Allen. And uh, he's played by John Malkovich. And I have to say that as someone who's like really enjoyed most of the things that Louis CK has done, but like also is very aware of, you know, the (laughs) somewhere between rumors and allegations um, surrounding his, you know, private conduct, which has been, which is well trod ground. We don't really need to get into here. Um, That was one of the most sort of awkward viewing experiences I can recall because I mean, first of all, he's making a movie about, about Woody Allen and about this line between uh, public and private uh, in the style of essentially Woody Allen's Manhattan, where mm-hmm. it is in black and white. It's got this op- this opulent score and it has this character who I think CK is even like flat out admitted. Yes, he is Woody Allen essentially with shades of Polanski thrown in there as well. Um, meanwhile, he like, he's also discussed the allegations against him in interviews. And well, I mean, to the extent that he'll say he doesn't, he won't talk about it which makes it the one thing that he won't talk about, which is quite glaring. And so he knows that people know about the rumors and he knows that people are going to be thinking about it while they're watching it. And there's like, there's just the levels of awareness are so, are are so potent that it's somewhat nauseating. Um, Meanwhile, there were plenty of scenes in the movie that I thought were, were hilarious. And John Malkovich is, is excellent as are some of the other uh, supporting players. Uh, some of the writing's really sharp. Some of the observations are really cutting, but I, you know, obviously I couldn't keep the context out of my head. So I was, it was even when I was enjoying it, it was one of the few times in my life I can earnestly say it was a guilty pleasure. Um, I don't. That's not a concept I believe in, but uh, that was not. <laughs> it, had I had I known in like even a smidgen of what the movie was ultimately going to be about. 
um, which I guess I should also say the movie's title, which is I Love You, Daddy, um, which is, you know, just a sign of the levels of provocation that we're looking at here. Uh, that I probably wouldn't have gotten a ticket, but I did, and I did an, end up writing about it over at uh, over at Sorted Cinema. So you can read my thoughts longer there. But yeah, that was awkward. How about did you? But do you regret having seen it? No, I don't regret seeing things. I mean, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. It just had I known in advance, it just it probably would not have been my first choice. Um, I mean, it, it's not, it's not a film I've seen a lot of writing about so far generally so i it was good for it was good for the site to have a review up but yeah and as someone who wrote about louis sort of week to week for a long time and again i've I've had a lot of admiration for things he's done it wasn't it wasn't easy to write in that sense either um mm-hmm. but you know you gotta you gotta write the real i guess absolutely anyway um i'm trying to figure out if there's things we've that even two of us have seen um what, what was some other stuff you enjoyed chelsea not very much, actually. <laughs> of your you twenty the films, most films of us, yeah. and you didn't see much you liked. Uh, Man, my I liked average wants to sky prototype. High. Right, the Blake Williams film, which I've heard so yeah. much about. I thought that was quite good, and that might be it. Just those three. <laughs> those three. What? Wow, yeah. that's rough, man. Okay, so. Jeez, I guess not counting Mother, which we which we've sort of already trod. What was what what was the pits then? What was the worst of the worst? God, um, <laughs> Redoubtable was really bad. Why did you see Redoubtable? I think that, that was expected. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? I was just morbidly curious. I think for um for anyone who's not familiar with uh, w- with what redoubtable or redoutable is uh, this is michael hezevinicus of the artist and the oss movies fame why did he stop making oss movies he was good at that um that was that was his zone man anyway that guy decided to make a biopic about jean-luc godard um so i mean so what is that like is he does he try to like mimic godard's style or what is oh yeah for sure the whole thing is just parody like well not parodies homage to godard's new wave films and it's kind of all about how everyone hates that godard stopped making new wave films and started making marxist films which is like the dumbest argument i think because like as a filmmaker i think godard has really improved over the years and just gotten better I also think he's a horrible person. So this kind of, uh, you know, it's a film about how he sucks because he makes Marxist films, but they don't really care that he's a bad person to the people in his lives or like he was an anti-Semite and all that. It just kind of glosses over that part. But then is very upset that he stopped making new wave comedies. Mm. Which it is it sounds like it's a very bit of a closed-minded view. of. I, I, I'm not terribly familiar with Goddard. I, I have seen some of his new wave stuff. That's pretty much it. But it sounds like it's a bit of a... If you know who Goddard, Go, Goddard? Goddard is, maybe a bit of a closed-minded film, would you say? Oh, for sure. It likes all of Goddard's kind of entry-level, accessible, fun movies, and then doesn't really consider any of his other work. Mm, okay. Which is also just... I don't really care if you like his earlier films or his later films or his fun films or his political films it's just that to kind of it centers around his relationship with Anne Vyazemsky who was 19 years old at the time and he was 37 and he was very like controlling and abusive of her and it uses that to discuss how much the director hates Godard's political cinema 
which is a weird angle to take, and I thought it was really sexist. That's a little rough, yeah. So it has very little going for it. I, I just really, I don't know what it is about the French that I just don't trust them to do biopics of their own people. Like, <laughs> it's especially, I don't know if you saw this, the Serge Gainsbourg one from a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't... That was not a great film. No, but it, at least that one was, like, kind of, like, it, it seemed like it, it sort of did justice to his bastardliness, um, in addition to many other things. Um, of course, it did it just by throwing everything in the kitchen sink in there. Um, whereas yeah. it seems like this was just really, like, it sounds like exactly the Jean-Luc Godard movie that I would expect Michael Hesavinicus to make. Yeah, pretty much. Maybe you should have tried, like, framing it all around, like, the filming of Goodbye to Language or something. That would have been clever. That would have been probably fun, I think. Um, all right, so Tab in the... You didn't subject yourself to the Untouchables remake, did you? No, I did not. <laughs> Okay. What? What? Hold on. There's uh, there was a, a remake of the incredibly popular with uh, with everyone's parents um, French film Les Intouchables with uh, what was the remake called? I don't even remember. Um, oh, okay. while, yeah, like I saw that too. Kevin Hart Project. Oh yeah, that's right. Way. It was actually on the schedule that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I forget which title they ended up going with 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 Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. I like that it wasn't even. Untitled Brian Cranston Kevin Hart project. It was just Kevin Hart project. I like that. Um, anyway, huh. no, it was. Um, I I I just wanted to see if that was somewhere. Since you'd subjected yourself to the to the, to the Hesavinicus, I wasn't sure uh, what else was lingering near the bottom. Uh, I did see Victoria and Abdul, which oh, yes, I heard, I also knew that would be horrible, and it met my expectations. <laughs> it rose to the occasion. Dame Judi Dench, yeah. man. So I, I I know vaguely this is this is Judi Dench as, as Queen Victoria again, but I, I beyond that and the stills, I really don't know anything. I chose not to know anything about this movie. So what is it, and why is it bad? It's about uh, Queen Victoria's Indian servant comes to serve for her during colonial rule, and he loves her and degrades himself for her out of his love consistently so like there's a scene where he kisses her boots or he'll tell her that she's more important than his own wife and stuff like that and it's just about how she has this emotional development through their friendship which is based on his subjugation didn't we stop doing this i thought we stopped doing yeah, this well, I, I thought we stopped doing it once colonialism fell but i guess not <laughs> I don't understand how in 20... I haven't seen the movie, who knows, a crazy person. In whatever year this even, is. I haven't seen. But I don't understand how we can be making movies like that anymore. I mean, I'm a huge Judy Dench fan. She's a wonderful actress. I did see the trailer, didn't particularly care for it, to be honest. I probably won't go see it, but... Now that you've described it, Chelsea, like I'm, it boggles my mind that we're still making movies like this. What is our freaking problem? Well, I just, I don't know what the audience is other than, like, I guess women who look like Judy Dench. It was a lot of boomers in the audience, and they all seemed to really like it. A lot of, you know, laughing at all the jokes, which were actually just kind of these hateful colonial jokes. And I don't know, I think they all found it quite uplifting and fun which is what they were going for but right. uh, i'm not a big fan of colonialism 
Right, yeah. And they didn't oh, even no. and they oh, didn't no. even have the the gall to call it like rowing Miss Queenie or something. Like that would have <laughs> been good. Right. That would have been funny. Alas. Um I feel like my batting average was a lot higher. Um the worst thing that I saw was I don't know why, but I hadn't seen a new Quebec film in a while and I felt the urge to get one in there. Um, and I don't know what a smarter choice would have been, but I ended up with uh, Simon Lavoie's little girl who was too fond of matches. Um, I didn't see his previous film, um, Those Who Make Half a Revolution Dig Their Own Graves. Um, apparently it was a big deal. Uh, I don't know if it was any good or not. I know that this one wasn't. Um, and everything about it, like on, on paper, sounded great. It's this uh, moody-looking black-and-white uh, turn-of-the-last-century story about... Um, a young girl who lives in this remote house in this creepy uh, adjacent to this creepy village. And um, after her father dies, she starts to question everything about her upbringing and things get freaky. And I don't know on paper, it sounded interesting Um, in terms of how it was executed on screen. It ended up being yet another kind of unpleasant torture fest with the, with the particularly uh, Quebecian, twist of the fact that you know the the clear villain of the film is the church to the extent that you have shots of people wearing cross necklaces and like the the top of the frame like crops off the heads so it just really focuses on the necklace dangling center frame just so you get it um yeah it was not uh, and it also had this abhorrent flashback structure um anyway the the entire film totally just adds up to um Hey, did you know that um, women had a difficult time under the yoke of the church? And also the church is bad, Um, which, you know, I'm totally for those arguments um, in most contexts. But for two hours of just like relentless beating it into your head, um, again, marred by this uh, by this sort of recurrent flashback structure out of out of like bad, like first year screenwriting major um like playbook that someone should have someone should have really beaten out of uh beaten out of Lavoie's habits um anyway apparently it's based on a book which is very beloved in Quebec and elsewhere I haven't read it I hope it's better because the movie was very very bad um I was uh mostly pretty fond of everything else that I saw and there was one film in particular that I wish more people I know had seen and uh, that was the last film that I saw and that was Paul Schrader's First Reformed. Which... Oh, I saw that too. Oh, you did! Hooray! I, well, that, was, that was my Winter Garden movie. Oh, that's right. So you saw First Reformed. All right, we can talk about it. Yay! Uh, so yeah, this was another extremely strange viewing experience. Essentially, um, Schrader wasn't at my screening. I don't know if he was at yours. Um, uh, he was, yeah. There you go. He, I saw it on... It was like the one of the very last screenings of the festival, so I didn't get any directorial... Uh, context which is actually fine because i don't know about anyone else but i don't like q a's they're usually very bad um the only good one i've ever attended well the the martell one was good um albeit it went through a translator so it was very slow um the only good one really that i've ever seen was harmony corinne for trash humpers um (laughs) which was i mean precisely as obnoxious and confrontational as you would expect and you know totally fitting but anyway so uh, First Reformed is, uh, right, it's the new film written and directed by Paul Schrader. It's very clearly modeled on uh, on Plesson. Um And he, mm. I mean, Schrader wrote a book about 
wrote about Brassel before he'd even made or written any films. He has a long-standing history with him, with uh, with those aesthetics. And it follows Ethan Hawke as a uh, small-town priest with a, uh, you might say, a darker haunted past, uh, and his attempts to um, to soothe the frayed nerves of a young family, uh, including Amanda Seyfried. And uh, it starts off very quiet, very contemplative, very, um, well, very Brissonian. Uh, but then it takes a very sharp turn midway through into a totally different aesthetic uh, sensibility. And um, I honestly am still sort of wrestling with the turns that it takes uh, in that second half where it becomes much closer to something like Taxi Driver. Uh, it, it actually feels like, I mean, many people have pointed this out, but it feels like a sort of strange, unofficial sequel to Taxi Driver, albeit in a very different milieu and with a different set of uh, aesthetics going on. How did you feel about sort of the turn that first reform mm. takes in the middle. Yeah, a bit like you, Simon. I'm still sort of wrestling with that one. I know exactly the scene you're, you're speaking of. I think anybody who saw this at TIFF and who will see it when it comes out wide, presumably, will also be a little bit surprised by that turn it takes, and specifically the scene where it happens. Um, I would say I'm a much bigger fan of the first half, which uh, I, I guess I'm a bit of a I'm not that familiar with Paul Schrader, but I was thinking of Diary of a Country Priest, and in the second half, I was thinking of Taxi Driver, um, which is funny because in the q and speaking of disappointing Q&As, this, this actually was a disappointment. I'm not as, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit higher on Q&As than you, Simon. This one was actually surprisingly disappointing, and he said something weird like, as he wrote it, he didn't realize that it looked that it read like Taxi Driver, which blew my mind. Like how I don't know. Um, he also said again, I, I'm dancing around spoilers, but the moment that where you're sort of watching the film and you go, "Huh, what's going on?" All of a sudden, he just felt like doing something different. That was his answer to that. Well, question. that's how it comes again, across. Was, it's very much <laughs> like, "Well, I'm done with that. Let's do this now." Yeah. Um, again, I'm a bigger fan of the first half than the second half. Uh, I find, I find as though, again, I think the second half is supposed to work because of what Ethan Hawke has gone through, that dark past you alluded to. Um, I think that's why it's supposed to work. I'm just not 100% convinced that it, that it did work. I didn't walk out of there disliking the movie. It, it's perfectly fine as an experience but I, I found myself really enjoying it legitimately for an hour and then for another hour going, okay, well, I guess this is where we're going. I'll live with it, but I don't love it. So it, it's fine. I, I think I was a little more positive on it than you were. And I, I know for my co-host Kate over at the Lodgers um, was a huge fan. It was She saw it at Telluride and it was her favorite thing there. Um, I'm sort of between the two of you. I will say that there's a moment in the first half where um, where Ethan Hawke is talking to a very troubled young man about about the future and about global warming and global stewardship and all this and it's so plain spoken and earnest and um and heartfelt and it's i it it was the only time during the festival where i teared up so it got me oh wow it it, it got me there um and there's a moment in the second half where ethan hawk tells someone off who he's been clearly waiting to do that for quite a while and then it switches to his inner monologue, and he says, "I feel great now," which was very, very <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah, I admit that was a fun. Yeah, I got a chuckle out of that. That was yes. pretty good. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm still I'm still wrestling with it, and I, I hope to get to discuss it with Kate and hopefully some other people 
on a longer future podcast. Um, so now that we've gotten sort of the the major peaks and valleys out of the way, was there any other films that anyone wanted to mention that stood out for one reason or another? Uh, I guess I, I can go. Uh, yeah, but just very, very briefly, maybe a couple films that I think are worthy of mention. Uh, incidentally enough, another South African movie. Uh, and I, I saw, I think, <laughs> a third of the movies I saw were South African. Um it's called Five Fingers for Marseille, Marseille, if you will. Um, interesting movie. Uh, it's it's a western. It's a modern western. It, I think it's supposed to take place today, although it's in very very rural South Africa, and it's. Uh, I can, man, the setup would take a few minutes to describe, but essentially, uh, it's about five childhood friends that live in a rural small town slash slum, if you will. And one of them uh, turns into sort of a man with no name type. Uh, you, you see the kids for about 10, 15 minutes, and then the rest of the movie is them as adults. And and the protagonist, uh, if you will, is sort of a man with no name type. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, it's 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 got a lot of great g- grit to it. Uh, it. It's not a very funny movie. It doesn't go for laughs very much. But it certainly does appreciate many of the aesthetics of a Western. Very different setting for a Western. You wouldn't think of necessarily – A, you wouldn't think of South Africa. And B, you wouldn't necessarily think of South Africa in, in, a, in a cold region of that country. It's always cold throughout the whole, the whole film. Everybody's got a scarf and a coat and you can see their breath. Um, so it, it, I think I, I put it, uh, as I recall in my review, my, my, probably I, I tried to put it as such. It's like the perfect example of a Western that's the same but different. <laughs> like A lot of Western tropes are there, but it still feels different. So Five Fingers from Marseille was a lot of fun. And I also give a, a, a little shout out to a film called uh, Three Peaks, which is a German-French co-production. Um, it has... Um, Speaking of the artist, it has Berenice Bejot in it, although she doesn't have the biggest role of the three. It's essentially the story of three people, uh, mother, her current lover, who they've been with for a couple of years, and and her uh, blood relative son, her, her actual son. And it starts off a little weird. The, the, the father's German. She's obviously French. So the kid learns is multilingual and the kid just isn't very responsive to the mother at first. And they say, well, let's let's fix this. Let's fix this. Let's go on a vacation in the mountains. And it turns out it's actually the father-in-law that the child is not a big fan of. And it it's like a psychological thriller where you never really understand where's this kid coming from? What is his problem? And what is his intent towards the father-in-law? It's like, it's like a, <laughs> it's a demon child movie, but it's not a science fiction movie, <laughs> so to speak. Huh. It's very slow. It's very contemplative. I liked it a lot. I thought it was very good. The child in the film is very good. Um, speaking on the topic of Q and A's, I thought this was a good one. The director was present. I think the the actor who plays the German father-in-law and the director were there, and the director was saying, you know, directing kids is very difficult. I would basically give the guy his lines like thirty seconds before we rerolled cameras, and it worked great. It's a very 
strange, distant, what's going on in this little freak's mind performance. I, I liked it a lot. Three Peaks is its title. I was um, I was on the subject of Westerns. I was supposed to see uh, Marlena the Murderer in four acts. I had a ticket for it, which was an Indonesian Western, I believe. And it sounded really cool and really neat. But I was just I was too tuckered out and it just it didn't happen. I, I was also supposed to see Third Murder, um, but uh, that didn't work out either. Um, was there uh, any, anything else that stood out to you, Chelsea, for reasons good or ill? Um, I actually really enjoyed the it's the mountain between us, the one where Kate Winslet and Idris Elba are stranded on a mountain together. Right. Like, it's kind of a stupid movie, but it was very sincere nice. and not boring, which is good. You're the only person I've heard say anything nice about that movie. That I mean, is such yeah, a relief. it's kind of sad that everyone hates it. I think it's not bad. <laughs> Uh, is it true that there's like romantic bonding over gangrene? Uh, not or, over or was... gangrene. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there was uh, some some comic exaggeration going on. I mean, I don't. There's know... no gangrene in the movie. Oh, that's well. Now, now it's ruined. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, right down to the title. I think people. Were, I think it was just set up for for ridicule. I don't know. It's like very earnest, which I admire. Even though it's kind of stupid, it's it believes in itself. <laughs> so, what is the actual premise? Essentially, like Idris Elba and Kate Winslet get lost in the mountains, and there there are perilous circumstances that drive them together, or whatever. Yeah, it's mostly her. She breaks her leg, and then she falls through the ice into a frozen lake. And you know, it's like her constantly causing these problems for them as they're trying to make their way out. Thanks, women. Yeah, it's... Oh, yeah, it's not, like, a politically correct film in any way. But comparatively to a lot of the other things, it's probably the most feminist thing I saw. That is brutal. <laughs> that is not good. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, man. Um, there were... Um, unless there was anything else you wanted to mention, Chelsea, there was a couple of things I wanted to bring up. Um, I guess the only other one that I really liked was the Royal Hibiscus Hotel which is the Nigerian rom-com, which is also like a fairly conventional film, but it was kind of nice to just see something that was uh, fun and fast-paced, not boring. I also thought like that one did have a good female lead who was a real character and not as some sort of sexist object to be abused by men. Mm -hmm. Um, well, speaking of female characters and abuse, uh, albeit not necessarily with the sort of dynamic you mentioned, um, I did want to mention uh, Hong Sang-soo's The Day After, which I feel like I've seen a Sang-soo before, but it's been a really long time. Um, he makes really quiet, conversation-driven movies. Um, this one in particular was, I mean, it's it definitely earns the word slight, which has been thrown around at it a lot, but in a nice way, I think in the context of a film festival, it's nice to see something that's a little bit slight and a little bit more, um, a little bit lower stakes, let's say, than than some of the sort of more um, highfalutin things you might see. Um, it was quiet and funny and warm, even though its uh, its protagonist was clearly meant, was you know, clearly a complete bastard. Um, but it's it's it gives a lot of room to its female characters to. Um, to to express themselves at his bastardry and you know to have autonomy and to not just be um you know falling through ice and breaking their legs or anything like that um 
a couple other films I wanted to quickly mention before we uh, think about wrapping up and talking about the fest as a whole. Uh, I did make a point to see um, Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin because I'm a big fan of um, his previous work. Veep, I'm lukewarm on, but I loved In the Loop and I love the thick of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I was hoping for something with a similar level of um, of barb to it. And I should also say the other reason I really wanted to see it was because I knew I had extra vouchers left and I wanted to give them to my commie friends so they could come with me to watch this funny movie about Stalin. Oh, that's uh, nice. And I, yeah, I, I did end up getting most of them in, and a good time was had by all. Um, they also all, as as Leninists, they all hate Stalin, so they enjoyed watching him die. Um, anyway, um, I was, I did enjoy the movie. I, I, I thought it was very funny, um, but it, I was left thinking that for the scope of the story that it was telling, um, and for clearly just every aspect of the movie is just bursting at the seams in terms of how many characters there are. And all the the some in, in some cases some very dist- distressing backstory to some of the characters, which fit in very oddly with uh, with the tone of the film. Uh, it really felt like Inuchi was held back by being restricted to a film, and it seemed like it was more suited to uh, to a series, which is really too bad because In the Loop was really brilliantly um, self contained, even though it was actually based on a series. Um, so this this did deliver in terms of um, in, in terms of just sheer comedy and people like Jason Isaacs uh, were were hilarious and I've never in Rupert Friend as well really really funny physical performances from guys who I really just think of as as dramatic actors um, so yeah that was good in that sense even though by the time it was over I did feel a little bit deflated it did it just didn't feel complete for some reason anyway uh, so that and First Reformed were my uh, my final screens of the festival. So as, as I said, my, my batting average is mostly pretty good. And even some of the, some of the more awkward experiences I had were still for movies that, that were, well, let's say not boring. Um, I did want to talk briefly about, you know, I feel like having gone to TIFF for ver- to varying degrees for almost a decade, I've, I've heard a lot of, you know, private grumbling about, you know, some stuff to do with how, you know, people who've worked for the festival, people who volunteered, as well as just people who go a lot and, you know, lots of grumbling about, oh, you know, the, they bring in a lot of bad movies. They bring in a lot of movies that open a few days after they screen at the festival. Um, they bring in movies just because they have big name actors. Um, the ticket prices are very high, which as someone who went okay. publicly this year, holy shit, the ticket prices are way too high. Way, way it's too insane. high. I Astro- bought one ticket <laughs> Yeah, after you guys, I mean, you guys were kind enough to give me some tickets, but I bought a few on my own. And my God, if you want to see something at TIFF at night, it is more than a IMAX 3D ticket. It's insane. Yeah. Um, Chelsea, I know you, you, you must have had a pass through. Was it through a CinemaScope? It was through ScenePrete. Ah. So I mostly went to press screenings. I didn't pay for anything. Yeah, exactly. I can't yeah. afford it. It was way too expensive. Yeah, way too expensive. And then actually, I was chastising you for your film choices. But you know what? If I'd had a press pass, I probably would have seen all kinds of garbage too. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel like it's it's better to see it now when I don't have to pay than have to pay to see the mountain between us later. <laughs> That's true, but it's and so it, earnest. And it's funny that you, it's funny that you saw everything for free, and yet it didn't it didn't give you a kinder disposition towards anything. Um, no, I don't like anything. <laughs> that's perfectly as is your prerogative. Um, but anyway, but I feel like this year, and I don't know, maybe I just haven't been paying enough attention to the local press. 
but it feels like there was some sort of critical mass that got hit where i i read uh several major pieces criticizing the festival for all the things that i mentioned as well as sort of their attempts to sort of course correct after their um their ticket sales actually dropped last year and that was made public and they had to do some sort of moves um i don't know chelsea at, at I sort of want to circle back to like, how do you feel about like TIFF, the cultural Leviathan and like what happened with what seemed to me to be sort of like a new backlash this year? Yeah. Well, all I mean, with that TIFF article that everyone has been reading, I mean, a lot of it's just about how they're spending their money and how expensive things are. And I think like that's a huge issue where they're asking for about $30 for a film that you can see, three days later for regular price and it's just not really accessible to anyone like i wouldn't have gone to see anything probably if i didn't have a pass yeah um i mean i understand that it's like a major cultural event and it's not going anywhere but it would be nice if i mean toronto toronto is you know is a massive hub for like just everything that is overpriced i've i always like to the, the way i always frame it to people who've never been here is that it's it it tries to be a world-class city by reselling you stuff that other cities have at a premium um but it really doesn't have culture of its own um other you know with, with a few exceptions it just it doesn't have its, its own sort of set of cultural signifiers in the same way that new york or la or or even montreal does at least I don't think that it does, and I, I've lived here for a few years. And TIFF, to me, is sort of the ultimate example of that, where, like, I've seen some great movies at TIFF. I've seen, I've had some great movie-going experiences. It's great to have such a huge event that really um, at least appears to celebrate film culture. Um, and, you know, as always needs to be said, they do they program a lot of really cool stuff. Um, they've got they, – they do a lot to support, you know, avant-garde film. And, of course, they run their venue year-round – which is their major source of financial woe. Um, but at the same time, like, did they really, I guess it must've been a purely business decision that the one pro that the program that got completely axed this year, which was uh, wavelengths, which for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's sort of the, it's sort of in between um, sort of the more openly art housey programs and something like midnight madness It's sort of films that straddle, sorry, it wasn't wavelengths. It was um, Vanguard. That was the program that got axed. And, um, yeah, that was totally gone this year. And it, it used to be the favorite program of so many people that I know who went to TIFF. And increasingly you're left thinking, like, who is this for? Hmm. Good points. But I always say the same thing whenever I talk to people that have been to overwhelmingly more film festivals than myself. Because uh, I frankly haven't been to that many. Um, at least not regularly. And I always – my reaction is always the same and it's okay well you know but they played mother you know why are people paying 30 dollars to see mother it's coming out that friday don't go see it see see you know i went to see three pieces uh three pieces whoops uh three peaks you know five fingers of marseille high fantasy when i you know i have no idea i did it and 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 simon uh, you know we've talked about fantasia you and i many times i i basically did it fantasia style who directed this not sure who that is uh, who's in it? Not sure who these people are. Where is this from? I don't think I've ever seen anything from that country. 
nice looking picture and the synopsis is okay. I'll go see it. That's sort of how I do these festivals. I understand that if you're writing for a major publication, you have certain obligations, and that kind of sucks. You know, if you have to go see something and it's coming out wide soon, you know, it's maybe not as thrilling. But just for someone like myself, who you know, I bought a few tickets on my own accord, albeit one of them was for first reform, but I had the winter garden excuse. Other than that, I just I, I purposely avoid the big movies. Not right. because I don't like big movies. I love big movies. I see big movies all the time, but that's why I'm not going to see them at TIFF or Fantasia or the FNC here in Montreal. The the difficulty presents itself when like, you know, TIFF is only it's 10 days long, which is not short, but for the number of movies that they're showing, it is short. Um, and every screening that you get of Mother or Mountains Between Us or Victoria and Abdul or Tab or whatever the hell they call the Ain't Too remake, which I'll probably never remember, um, you know, that's a, that's a screening that doesn't go to something else. That's That means that, you know, I don't know if anyone... You had a press badge, Chelsea. Have you ever tried to rush a movie before? Uh... No, I just, it, the lines get so big that it yeah. seems like you would never get in. Yeah, I, when mm-hmm. I snuck, well, I didn't snuck, when I gave vouchers to my friends to go see Death of Stalin, uh, that was on the last morning of the festival, and I got us to line up in the rush line. I had a ticket, but to use the vouchers, you need to get in the rush line. I got us lined up about 100 minutes before the movie started, and... We still like we. I barely got them in. It was, and this is at the Ryerson Theater, which is a big venue. And again, this is on the last morning of the festival. By then, you know, all the by by the final morning, there is no glamour left. And you you have to imagine that means there's a lower body count um, on the festival grounds as well. But it was still like an absolute shit show trying to get in. Um, I remember last year. I I, th- I believe it was last year. I was lined up 75 minutes early for the tribe which if anyone has seen it is an incredibly disturbing um, Ukrainian film with, um, no, with that is entirely in Ukrainian sign language with no subtitles and no score. And still it was completely sold out. And I w- ended up sitting like directly in front for, you know, se- sequences like the you know, 15 minute abortion sequence. Um, and it was, just, it was a very, it was a unique experience, but still like everything with my, my, my point is like, even the really outre stuff gets sold out and it gets really, really, um, time consuming and not to mention expensive to see things. Um, it's, but then again, you know, I, I brought up all these concerns to a room full of, uh, film nerds at a party a, a few months ago that it wasn't a people, it wasn't, it wasn't really a, a festival meant for your average Torontonians and all my concerns were dismissed. So what do I know? Anyway, I don't mean to only bitch because I, I did see a lot of good things at TIFF. Um, and I should mention that uh, our, our writers, including Chelsea, um, did a fantastic job covering it. We ended up having, I believe, over 30 reviews, which for our first year covering it uh, and, you know, <clears throat> self-funding was uh, pretty good. And I feel good about that and our coverage. But I do I do think that um, there's still some 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 difficult decisions and some difficult thinking that still need to be done around TIFF to make it a little bit more uh, audience friendly and not just uh, and and not just I guess foreign press friendly or distributor friendly uh, Weinstein friendly you might say. <laughs> anyway, oh, did you have any 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 fun sightings at your industry screenings, Chelsea? Um, I stood beside Adam McGoyan 
before a screening, and he ate a whole ice cream bar in like five minutes. That's cool. exciting. I can't. Yeah, I can't it was a bit fun. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the glitz and glamour you're going to get out of our podcast today. Adam McGoyan and an ice cream sandwich. Did, did he even have a movie this year? Or was he just like. I don't around? think so. He was seeing Mrs. Fang. There you go. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't recall him having a new movie. Or of course, I don't recall recall anyone discussing a new a new movie of his in quite a while. So, anyway, sorry, Adam McGoyan. I didn't mean to be mean and petty just then, but I definitely was. Anyway, uh, so thanks for joining us, Chelsea. Where can our listeners find you online, like on the twitters and stuff? Uh, my Twitter handle is at chelsea dpc. And uh, you, where's your, where's most of your writing showing up these days? It's kind of all over the place with TIFF, but I have a website, which is chelseaphillipscar.com, which There's... has, where I have links to everything. And that's Phillips with two L's, right? Yep. Two L's, two R's. Fantastic. Uh, Edgar, what what you doing these days? Where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at double uh, O pop. That's double underscore O-H underscore P-O-P. And um, although it was... Absolutely delightful uh, writing for uh, Goomba Stomp and uh, sort of the old sorted cinema stomping grounds. I'm actually at cutprintfilm.com these days, which is a very fine website in its own right, if I might say. Fantastic. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Hollow Minds. And I'm going to say this now so that then I have to actually do it. Uh, I'm planning on starting a, uh, a column about all 19 movies that have received an F cinema score. Um, I'm really, really excited about. It. I'm also sort of interested in you know what these movies have in common, or um, you know potentially what the what the trends are, what the logic is between what gets an F and what doesn't. Uh, it's only happened in 19 movies in like 31 years, so it's kind of an interesting sample group. Um, I've already sort of uncovered some interesting bits of research that I won't spoil because soon someone else will figure them out and I'll be annoyed. Um, anyway, so that'll give me some impetus to start writing that uh, in the near to immediate future. Anyway, thank you, Chelsea and Edgar, for joining me. And do check out SortedCinema.com. And that's it. Thank you all for listening. Rode here on the bus. Now you're one of us. It was magic So